Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer, composer, and songwriter Jim Eustwith. But first of all, if you're not aware, there's a new approach for artists to make videos. Now, one of the problems with traditional music videos, as they're viewed today, is that they're too long. So only diehard fans really watch them till the end. They're too scripted in general, so they don't perform on social because viewers expect things to really look raw and spontaneous. They're generally too polished, so music video will often come across like an ad. They're too slow, so if you have dramatic B-roll that's opening up the video, well, that's just another good reason to skip. They're generally too expensive. You can spend your money better in other places. And, of course, they're too time-consuming. They take a lot of time to really put together, as you well know. So, really, we're in the age of short-form videos, and... Really, when it comes down to it, there's no such thing as too much content, and that's a problem for a lot of artists because they would rather create music rather than create content. But that being said, frequent video output really does matter. It's important for artist discovery, and that happens a lot on TikTok and Reels. The other thing is some platforms' algorithms are different, and they actually reward creators who really have a lot of content and have a constant output of content. It's the law of averages. The more good stuff you post, the better your chances of something going viral. And fans have grown to expect constant output, constant content, and that's usually with short videos. So, that being said, if we look at videos in general, music videos that artists do, authentic has replaced perfect, and short has replaced long, and instant social consumption has replaced video archiving, like on YouTube. Now, that doesn't mean that longer videos are obsolete. In fact, lyric videos on YouTube often do better than big production music videos that artists like to do. AI-generated music videos are really easy to do and really cheap, and there are many ways that you can do it. There are many services online that will do this for you, and they look pretty good. And here's the thing. If you have longer video content, you can repurpose it. You can repurpose it into short Instagram posts or Instagram stories that have texts or lyrics overlaid or TikTok clips or loose for Spotify's Canvas feature. There's a lot of different ways where both short and long content can be utilized. But the whole trend here is short videos actually do a lot better than long, big production videos So, you're better off to spend your time on the short ones that are easy and not concentrate so much on the long ones. And if you do, there are ways to actually stay away from the big production and still get what you need. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted rate at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, if you're not aware, there's a big problem with digital data. And that's how long will it last? Artists, musicians, 
bands that have recorded on old digital formats know how difficult it is to get that material off. And as a result, people are wondering how long it's going to last. So they figure hard drives are going to last five years and the newest formulations of tape, 10 years, and CDs and DVDs, 15 years. Just a swipe of a magnet will basically clear a hard drive. And CDs and DVDs are subject to something called plastic rot that happens, especially if there's a lot of sun involved. So with that in mind, Microsoft is testing a brand new glass-based storage. It's called Project Silica, and it's a 3x3-inch glass platter that holds about 100 gigabytes of data, or 200,000 songs. Here's the thing. It's immune to EMP nuclear pulses, and they think it will last about 10,000 years. It uses a super-fast laser, and it's basically a laser that can fire at one quadrillionth of a second. The laser etches a 3D pattern into the glass. The glass doesn't spin, actually. It's square. Then it uses another laser with an AI algorithm to actually read it. We go another step. This is actually going to the Global Music Vault in Norway, which is next to the Global Seed Vault. It's part of what they call the Arctic World Archive. It's now the home of manuscripts for the Vatican and scientific papers and cultural treasures. It's also been declared a demilitarized zone by 42 nations. The seed vault protects almost a million seed species. And again, it's in the Arctic, so it's all stored at about zero degrees. Like I said before, everyone is worried about what's going to happen in the future. And this figures that any music that's stored this way is going to be preserved for about 10,000 years. My guest this week is Jim Eustwit, who quit his marketing job in 2011 to work as a music producer and composer. Since then, Jim has produced music for Universal, EMI, BMG West One, and Ninja Tune, and has been commissioned to write music for the BBC, Sky One, and Channel Four. He's also walked the boards of the National Theatre and London's West End. During the interview, we talked about shifting from being a singer-songwriter to a composer, the approach to writing trailer music, battling the temp score, how many composers get fired and no one ever hears about it, and much more. I spoke with Jim via Zoom from a studio in the UK. You've done a lot of things, and you've had a couple different careers. So let's start with your background prior to the music business. Uh, prior to the music business, well, so I left university or college um, and became an investment banker and <laughs> um, mainly because that's what I had some, I'd had some experience in as part of my degree. Um, but quickly kind of realized that it wasn't, it wasn't my bag. It wasn't what I was into. Um, from that, I kind of moved into marketing, which kind of had a creative outlet to it um, specifically for anyone um, old enough or um, sufficiently de-traumatized enough to remember the crazy frog. Um, I was kind of, I joined the company that was responsible for getting that to number one, certainly in the UK charts. I don't think it charted in the US. Well, maybe it did chart in the US. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I was involved with the team that got that to number one. And and at the same time, simultaneously sort of doing the singer-songwriter thing, but just as a hobby. But it got to a point whereby, you know, it's like making an album. And if if you're sort of picking at it, little bit here a little bit there it takes forever it's you know making an album is a big big deal is a, a big process so it i decided to sort of go right okay i'm going to pack everything in finish my album um i saved up enough money to sort of last for a whole year um 
And, you know, best case scenario at the end of that year, maybe things are working as a musician and I don't have to go back to work in the day to the nine to five. Um, worst case scenario, I have an amazing year, finish my album, uh, make music every day, all day, every day, and then go back. Um, I never went, never went back. Um, I, um, I sort of, I didn't end up making ends meet in that year, but I decided that I had to make a go of it. So I started working in a pub um, at night so that I could compose during the day. Um, and yeah, that was... Yeah, I mean, I, this all happened. I was about 30 when um, I sort of did this sort of handed in my notice and did this radical career change. Um, but yeah, I've not looked back and it's been a kind of roller coaster ever since. I've just been a kind of freelance composer, producer. Um, yeah, and I suppose refining what it is I do. I was listening to um, one of your podcasts about, you know, your, your sort of backstory of the sort of like, you know, working in studios, working in production, and you're also, you also started off playing a, a, playing in a band. And I think it's that, that similar journey is that you start doing music and, uh, you know, you have to try something to know whether or not it's right for you. And I was doing this singer-songwriter thing. And for me, it was never about getting on stage. I was never, I, I wanted to be in the engine room. I wanted to be the writing, the recording. But it had to go through that to get, get you know, learn that. Did you go right into production music then when you took that year off to do your record? When did it kind of dawn on you, oh, maybe that's a good path? Well, it was, I think... The thing about being a singer-songwriter is it's it's art and there's no commercial need for art per se. People like it, people consume it, but there's no kind of like, nobody's out there. So you're going, we need, we need this artist doing this thing right now. Whereas, you know, when you look at production music, there's a need for it. You know, TV media owners, TV companies, editors, the people need music for TV and film. Um, but I think also for me, like, whilst I listened to commercial music, I was sort of never into commercial music in the quite the same way that I was into um, sort of music for TV and film. I never really listened to lyrics. Um, I managed to sort of have Rage Against the Machine as my favorite band for the best part of 20 years. And it was only like probably five years ago that I sat down to actually read the lyrics. And went, wow, these are really good. Um, for me, it was always the sonics. It was always what was going on with the instrumentation. And, and you know, um, I think as a singer songwriter, that's probably when I first started to listen to lyrics, because obviously you've got to write, write a song. Um, so, so yeah, so it was, I think for me, it was always instrumental music and, um, and I just felt as well, like, you know, there was a need for it. So if I could find that sort of business need, cause you know, music's about, we're treading the fine line between art and commerce. Um, and I think as an artist, it's sort of, you know, your, it's your purest form of creative expression. Whereas as a, as a composer for TV and film, there's obviously the art is there, but at the same time, you've, you're serving someone else's vision. You're, 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 you're being asked to provide music for someone else for a brief. And, you know, it's more of a collaboration, whereas, you know, as an artist, you can, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Um, so yeah, I got into production music doing sort of bits for sort of small libraries um, here and there. And then that sort of built up and I sort of managed to wangle my way onto Universal's books. I've done stuff for BMG and I'm working with a big trailer library in the U S at the moment um, called audio socket ASX doing trailer music. So yeah, I mean, 10 years ago, I had no idea I'd be sort of writing music for movie trailers, but um, but here I am. Okay, I want to go some other places, but let's talk about trailer music while we're there, because that's such a specialized art, and I know a few people that do it, it seems like it's kind of pressure pack for them, because they don't have a lot of time to do what they need to do, but it's a different approach to writing, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and it's it's yeah, it's an art form. So I'm I'm a bit worried that if ever I go back to sort of writing commercial music, it's always going all going to sound like trailer music because I'm so kind of used to the format now. You know, the sort of three or four act structure. 
um, you can get away with big pauses and breaks in a piece of music like you that you could never get away with a, with a commercial track. Um, and you know, trailer music is like being beaten around the head with a with a with a big fish because it's it's bold, it's bombastic, it's over the, everything about it is over the top, which um, is sort of quite nice. But you know, I think if ever I go back to sort of doing artist stuff, my own stuff, everything's going to be over the top and big and bombastic. But it's yeah, and it's you know it's, it's it is a tough game. I mean, a lot of the stuff I do is not necessarily the bespoke stuff. Um, it's kind of like the production music. It's you know you're you're sort of filling out a library of material and, and hoping that your your stuff gets picked up and synced for a for a big movie trailer. You know, the dream being one day I'm sat there in the cinema and all of a sudden the trailer comes on and you know my you know, for a big Disney thing or um, Marvel and you know it's your 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 music in the background. But um, but yeah, it's 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 also interestingly like with. The production music industry is sort of what the composer gets is somebody was I was interviewing on my podcast recently was saying that it's been a bit of a race to the bottom with production music, that the composer is getting a smaller and smaller fee. With trailer music, the IP that these people are working with is so highly valued. You know, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars worth of, of, of movie footage and movie material. The IP is so highly valued that the music is really, really important and they want, they want only the best music. Um, and in a in a world sometimes where you know um, speed or or volume is is um, you know, favoured over sort of quality, I think for me I'm very much in the camp of I you know I want each piece of music I write to be better than the next. Um, and working within that sphere within trailer world, you know that the people want it to be the best it can be rather than oh yeah just do whatever and do it quickly, which I you know found to be the case doing stuff for TV. How long do you have, what's the time period between the time you get an assignment to when you have to turn it in? Well, so it's generally, it depends on the sort of the nature. I mean, I'm actually sort of exec producing albums uh, for this company, Audio Socket, and we try to have kind of like a six to eight week lead time from issuing a brief to getting everything mastered, artwork done, and the sort of album shipped out the door. Um, obviously, it depends on people's schedules and what have you. Um, but I think that's something that appeals to me because I, I do a lot of ad pitches as well, and I don't like being against the clock. It's I just it's that time pressure. It kind of kills me a bit. Um, whereas with this, you know, having that that time period, and I'm someone who likes to get started early. So if I've got eight weeks to do something, I'll start week one and I'll sort of eke it out for eight weeks. There's other guys in there that will sort of like the three days before deadline. They'll start as an exaggeration because obviously it's got to go through a process of review and, and editing. But you know, some people are kind of very last minute. But I'm uh, I'm always early to the party. So you've done a lot of other things as well. You've done theater. Yeah, I've dabbled on the yeah, dabbled dabbled in theater, which, which was great. You know, I've played in the West End and at the National Theater in the UK, and primarily as a musician rather than a composer. I've done bits of composing, but it was usually as a sort of as a musician and musical director, which was great. You know, it's amazing to kind of tread the boards, and it's it's not what's nice as well is as a musician, as because this was sort of off the back of my singer songwriting days, whereas. He's a solo singer-songwriter. I mean, I had a band that was bass player and drums, but the, the the focus is on me. Whereas when you're on stage with a with a company of actors, the focus is on them. So yeah. it's a bit more like, okay, yeah, nobody really cares about me. But yeah, it's great and it's it's nice because you're part of a team. Whereas you know, you'll know that working as a producer in a studio can be quite a solitary uh, pursuit. I mean, if you're working with an artist, there's people coming through the door, but you know, a lot of the magic happens after hours when they've gone, and you have to make what they've done sound amazing. And you're doing that on your own. But yeah, so theatre was good, but it's one of those things like I grew up watching movies. I didn't grow up going to the theater. And so there's, there's not quite the magic in theater for, for me that there is in sort of movies and, and sort of TV and film. 
So you've done a lot of television as well. That's not easy to break into. What was your break there? Well, I mean, I, I think my TV stuff has been more sort of like human interest, daytime TV stuff rather than I'm not, it, I mean, yes, if you're sort of looking at the top end drama stuff, it is very hard to, to break into. I think it generally goes through an agent, but um, I think it, it's the same as anything, Bobby. It's, it's about relationships and kind of the older I get, the more I realize that relationships is super important. And, you know, a lot of work that I get comes through sort of chance encounters with people whereby, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking to get anything from them. It's not a networking thing where I'm like, okay, come on, help me out. What's, what are you going to give me? What are you going to do? Um, it's more a case of just having relationships with like-minded people who at some point someone goes, Hey, I'm working on this thing. I really need some music. Would you be able to sort of help me out? And with TV, it was a, a friend from school that knew I sort of made music and sort of said, Oh yeah, we need to do, we've got this series. It was um, called Strictly Baby Disco, <laughs> which was basically about, it's not disco music at all. It's like 150 BPM. It's almost like happy hardcore and young, um, young teen girls sort of doing this cross between dance and gymnastics to this music. Um, and I got brought on as my first ever gig and they basically paid me, I think I probably worked out about 10 cents per hour that I worked on this <laughs> with the proviso that if what I did was sh shit, they wouldn't use it. So there was no guarantees. So obviously I went above and beyond to sort of try and make this the best it could be. And, and I did, and it was great. But, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that it's quite often when you're working with visuals, it's the visual that takes priority. You know, as human beings, we're, First and foremost, sight is our primary sense. So it's kind of stands to reason that, you know, that's what guides us. And quite often music is a bit of an afterthought. And in the world of television, they're so busy sort of organizing episodes, organizing rushes, organizing the edit, getting everything sorted, that the music's kind of like a, right, we need some music. And I tended to find that they didn't really care that much about it. And, you know, for some people that's fine, that they can just work quickly, high turnover, um, and it's all about volume. But I, as I say, I want to have each piece of music to be the best it can be. And as such, I sort of, after a few projects in TV, I just sort of thought, okay, this isn't quite for me. But yeah, it's it's relationships. It, you know, I think every door opens as a result of relationships, chance encounters. Um, I don't like the term networking. I prefer community building because networking always sounds a bit schmoozy and sort of like corporate and like, well, come here, come here, come here, kid. Yeah, yeah, right. So, um, but yeah, if you're building a community of people around you that sort of think have the same sort of, values, beliefs, and moving similar circles, then it's a natural, it's a friendship first and foremost. And then the, 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 the work side kind of comes from that. In your experience with television, did you have any encounters with temp music? Yes. <laughs> yes. All the time. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm to the point where I've, I've been sent stuff and they've, they've, they've sent me temp cues and they've said, can you just do something like this? And yeah, it's a funny one because so temp, Temp score, there's a big thing about Hans Zimmer and the, the the reign of Hans Zimmer and this epic film score that we hear, and it's become a bit homogenous and, and sounds quite similar. And, you know, one theory posited for why that is is because of the temp score. So the temporary music that gets laid under the film and the editor and the director hear it so many times that they basically want that cue or as close to that cue as possible, temp track as possible. So everything, you know, when quite often composers will receive a film and that will have a temp score underneath it. And that temp score will be made up of basically Hans Zimmer cues or, or sort of big action ones. So they end up in a, in a way kind of copying it, which isn't great. Um, but at the same time, the last film that I worked on, I feel temp 
Hughes would have been a good choice to have in there. It would have been it would have helped me because I think if a director has a very clear vision of what they want, you don't need the temp cue because they can hopefully articulate it. When that's less clear and you're stabbing wildly in the dark trying to sort of get something right, it's kind of like, well, in this instance, having a guide, a starting point would be useful. But what a lot of composers do, and I think this is a good way to do it, is if you're in brought into the project early enough, you actually start creating the temp cues yourself. So, for example, I was speaking to a guy called Stephen Harron recently who produced um, his Dark Materials. Is that series hit the US? I think so. It's on Amazon. Mm, yeah. so it's a it's a book adaptation. But I was chatting to him on my podcast about um, the composer Lorne Balf, who did the music for it, and basically Lorne submits a number of suites ahead of time. And, you know, Hans Zimmer does this as well with Christopher Nolan. And those those pieces of music are sort of used to temp score the film. And then so basically you end up working to your own music. The temp, the temp cues are your own music. Um, and I think that's probably a, a really good way to do it because it just means that, you know, they become attached to your music rather than someone else's. Um, but it also a good indication of what's working and, and what's not. Obviously, if you're brought in at the very last minute, it might not be possible to do that. You know, I had a guy on who was talking about he had three weeks to to score a, a you know two hour film, um, and in that instance, it was fully tempt. So he had that starting point, but he wouldn't have had the luxury of writing a load of cues and sort of like sending them through to the editor. They needed the, the music there and then. So yeah, double edged sword, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it can be good because it's a nice starting point, but other times it can kill you because you end up having to copy someone else's music. And as a composer wanting to be creative, it's like, that doesn't, doesn't feel good. Recently I had Ron Jones on the podcast who does family guy. And he told me that when he first got the gig, he was told the day before they were actually going in the studio that he got uh -huh. the gig for the pilot. And overnight he had to write two theme songs and the underscore for the pilot overnight. Amazing. And did I hear, I think the story goes, didn't it? The theme tune that he recorded, he basically had musicians come in and sort of record in his sort of home studio. And the plan was to sort of go and get a big band to record it afterwards. But they actually ended up keeping in his initial sort of demo takes with tuba players. He had a trumpet player and a trombone player and a tuba player. And I think they ended up keeping, keeping those instruments in rather than using the sort of big band. He didn't tell me that, but what he did say is the final theme song that they use is not his. Oh, really? And he felt that he did a better job, but nonetheless, it was, <laughs> you might enjoy listening to it because he's a funny guy and he has a lot of good stories. Well, so well, I think something that's kind of not really talked about in the world of composing for TV and film is, is how many composers actually get fired halfway through a job. Um, I mean, you saw it with, um, was it Blade Runner 20, the, the latest Blade Runner edition? I think it was originally Johan Johansson was scoring it, but then Hans Zimmer was sort of brought in later. I don't know what the details were there, but so many series that we know and love have had composers on them who've been axed halfway through, or even Stephen Warbeck actually managed to get fired before he'd even started a job uh, at one point. So yeah, it's it doesn't get talked about because obviously as a composer, you're probably not going to advertise the <laughs> fact that you got sacked. Yeah, right. Um, but right. it does it does happen more um, more than more than we know. I'm curious about how you went from being a singer-songwriter to suddenly getting cues in a production library. So it was, it was kind of touched on it earlier. It was that shift in focus um, that I didn't want to be on stage. I wanted to be in the engine room. So I, I basically did um, School of Hard Knocks. I just sort of, I just, I just worked really hard at it. 
I did a like a 12, 12, 12 evening um, course. So I had 12 sort of two-hour evenings where I studied logic, basically logic, music production in logic, um, which kind of demystified logic for me, kind of made me understand what was going on. And then from that, I just used to spend, as I said, I, I was working in pub at night, so I'd spend every day just writing. A friend of mine would send... Um, old music briefs that he had from projects that he was working on. He worked in production music. I'd write to those briefs as practice and sort of go, okay, cool. Let me see what I can do. And, you know, you're sort of, you're producing, you're spending time working out what, okay, how do they get that sound? You know, what, this was sort of back in the time when there was like big beat going on. It's like, okay, that nineties, noughties, big beat sound. How do I get that? Or hip hop, how do I get that kind of sampled feel? And, um, you know, really having to scrutinize and break down the sonic characteristics of a piece of music and work out how to recreate it. Um, so I'd work on these briefs and eventually got to a point where my tracks, he felt they were getting good enough. And he said, look, you know, maybe I can sort of run them by my manager and see if sort of they can get them away on, on the library. And I managed to get a couple away, but the relationship with that manager broke down because basically I walked away because I didn't feel like I could trust them. I don't kind of really want to work with people I can't trust and that left me in a position where I was no longer getting briefs. So I had to be proactive. And I identified, I basically decided on universal production music. I identified them as a company that I wanted to work for. I identified a gap in their catalogue as to, you know, what I felt was missing or something that they didn't have, but what I, that I also really wanted to do. So it was kind of acoustic guitar led. It was called Filmic Folk. Um, it's basically acoustic guitars and pianos, traditional sort of folk instrumentation, but with big string arrangements and sort of big expansive cinematic feel to them. I listened to their catalogue. They didn't have anything like that. I was sort of hearing bits of this in TV and film, and I thought I'd love to do some stuff like that. So I wrote seven tracks, picked the best three, produced them up. I made sure that it was all real instruments, you know, not relying on MIDI, because I had this epiphany when I was working in the, a theatre gig when I had to get assemble a super group of musicians together. And like when I just got those guys together in the studio and they were playing, I just had this realization that you can't rec recreate that with MIDI. You can't recreate that in the box. You can't recreate that on your own because I'm not as good a bass player as him. I'm not as good a drummer as him. So with Filmic Folk, I made sure I had real cellos, real violins. I was multi-tracking. I had one violinist playing the same thing, you know, multiple yeah. times and yeah. layer it in, same with the cello. Um, and I took these three tracks to Universal there was a guy that I'd met a couple of times who knew of me, I submitted them to him. Um, and he came back and said, yeah, we really like them. We want to take them. So they released them. It did really well to the point where, you know, shortly afterwards they said, right, let's get you in. We'll do another sort of seven track album. And that was it. It was, um, I tried, I tried, I tried that same approach afterwards with um, a piano album and it didn't go down quite well. It wasn't that it didn't go down as well, but I just couldn't find a home for it. I did eventually, uh, it got taken on by BM, BMG in the end. But um, yeah, it's that, I think quite often, Bobby, certainly within the artist world, people kind of waiting for someone to to do something for them. Wave a magic wand. It's like, ah, oh, just need to meet the right people. And it's like this very disempowering way to live. You've got to be out there sort of, and I don't like the term hustling, but you've got to be out there, you know, making your own luck. Um and if I was going to sit and wait for briefs or sort of wait for someone to give me something, you know, that was, that was never going to happen. I went to them. I created something that I thought they would want. So rather than going with an ask, I'm going with an offer and I'm saying, Hey, look, I've got this. Do you, do you want it? Do you want it? Um, and I was lucky and they took it. And yeah. Um, and that's, 
I think that's the way I kind of do things more now is like, you know, try and identify someone's pain point. Someone try and identify what someone needs. So rather than going to them with an ask is like, what can you do for me? It's like, here, here's something I've done for you. Um, and I think that is a much more powerful way to kind of start a relationship or, you know, get people's interest. You know, you mentioned before about how you were studying the briefs and you were spending time trying to make everything sound so good. What I've found is that the best producers in general are the ones that do production music because they're doing it all the time. Whereas a normal music producer will do what, how many, three, four projects a year if, if they're really busy. But if you're doing production music, you're doing it all the time. So you get really good at it. Yeah. I always felt the best producers came from there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I definitely think there's some, you know, I know some great produced, uh, production music sort of producers and, and composers. And, and it's funny because they tend, well, I suppose in the record industry, you know, producers don't often get the credit. Do they? They're, they're often working the magic behind an artist. And I think similarly, but with production music, certainly the way I used to do things, I, I was having to work on lots of different genres and that forces you to sort of like start digging into how do, how do you make hip hop? How do you make metal? How do you sort of, and then once you start to understand those different genres, and how they're what's going on that's when you can go oh well what if i take this little technique which i picked up right in a hip-hop track and bring that into you know this this orchestral track which is kind of something i've been working on recently with with, with some of the trailer music it's like i mean it's not new splicing sort of hip-hop beats with with orchestral but um i love beats and i love writing for orchestra so it sort of stands to reason that you know marrying up those two and cross-pollinating sort of different uh, production ideas and using them together um, hopefully that's when you start to create something a bit new and a bit, bit interesting. And it's, you know, it's just, it's good fun as well, isn't it? Keeps you interested. Jim, where did you learn how to write for orchestra? Self-taught really. I think it's again, listening. Um, I mean, I've read, I've read a couple of books and I've watched some sort of tutorials, but you know, you're basically working with harmony with an orchestra. Um, I think piano, I, I sort of spent a couple of years teaching myself piano because I'm a, first and foremost a guitarist um, and you can't orchestrate on a guitar with the best one in the world, but a piano keyboard. So I, I, I'm, if you ask me to sit down at a piano and play you a tune, I'm, I'm rubbish, but I sit down and write a piece of music. That's my starting point. And you look, it's just harmony. You know, you sort of think, okay, well, I've got all these notes and each of these different combinations of these notes. And at any one time in an orchestra, you know, it's similarly, you know, the, the orchestra will be playing a C chord. The difference to playing a C chord on the guitar and with an orchestra is that you can have the traditional notes of a C triad, but then you can also have all these sort of fruity little ninths or elevenths or sixes and sort of different, you know, go beyond four-part harmony. Um, and I started by just writing for strings. So it's like the kind of the old adage that if you restrict your palate, if you, if you start writing, trying to write for orchestra, there's so many instruments you're like, oh, I just don't know where to start. Whereas actually break it down and go, okay, well, I've got a cello, a viola and two violins, four-part harmony. How do I do this? And then just start experimenting with that. And then essentially when you, to, to, to put that to an orchestra, you know, quite often the double basses are doing the same as the cellos. Um, the low brass is usually, it's always going to be playing the root note of anything. So they're following the cellos and the double basses. And then thereafter, you sort of go, okay, well, my flutes will quite often follow my high violins. My trumpets will sort of do the similar sort of thing. And it's just, but as well to your point, Bobby, I think what's made that possible for me is is computing music because I'm 
I can't sit down with a piece of manuscript paper and, and, a, and a quill and sort of, you know, start writing out scores like Beethoven. I sit down at a keyboard, I play it in, I use a VST and I use my ears to go, okay, does, does that work? How is that working? Um, so without technology, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Um, but technology has kind of opened up this doorway of me being able to sort of take an orchestra out of a box and go, okay, let's, let's play with this and see how it sounds. And, and over time, you know, hopefully those orchestrations get better and better. Um, I'm not an orchestrator. I wouldn't take someone else's music and orchestrate it, but I tend to orchestrate you know, my own because there's, there's orchestrators out there who are incredible at what they do. You know, the, the, the score for The Incredibles, Michael Giacchino wrote the score for The Incredibles and um, the incredible thing about that score is the orchestration. And, you know, you don't hear about, no, I, I couldn't tell you who the orchestrator was, but God, whoever they are, there's probably multiple ones. They did a, a phenomenal job. I have a friend that's a film composer and he was telling me a film that he did and I said to him, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't remember any of the music from it. And he said, that is the best compliment anyone can ever give to me because I know I supported the film and I, whatever I did didn't stick out. And yep. I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I think most people, if they start to notice the score, it's because something's not right. Hmm. Um, although I think, you know, with modern film score, the score is almost becoming an integral part of the sound design and almost part of the characters as well. So like the the recent Dune movie, you know, the, the score is a really important part of that because it adds tension. And I don't know, it's hard because obviously as a as a composer, I, I always hear the music. But, uh, you know, for someone who doesn't, it's a bit like an editor. An editor's always going to watch a movie and go, oh, I'd have edited that a bit differently. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's normally people notice it when something isn't quite working. Um, otherwise, it should just be supporting you know, everything that's going on. What's your secret sauce? What is the reason why people hire you? Oh, that's a, that's a difficult question. I mean, I can think of one just knowing you for the 30 minutes we've been talking, and that's you seem like you're very easy to get along with, and that's a big, a big hurdle that many people in our business just can't get past. Yeah. It's funny, I was talking about this on a podcast recently that um is it Woody Allen says the three the three principles to uh being successful. Turn up on time, be nice, do a good job. Maybe, maybe I think the relationship part of it is important. And obviously the easier you are to work with, the more people will, will want to work with you. If if it if it's like pulling teeth, then no one's gonna sort of rush back. But honestly, Bobby, I I I don't know. I really don't know. It's probably something I should ask my clients and then sort of. Yes, but maybe you're better off not knowing. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, I think I try to always approach everything with a curiosity and a humility, leave my ego at the door. Um, because I think ego, particularly when you're collaborating with people, ego can be a big, big problem. And I think if you approach stuff with a curiosity of like, okay, well, how, how can we make this work? And that's, yeah, whether that's why people <laughs> want to work with me. Um, I don't know. I'd like to think, you know, ultimately I'm combining notes uh, and in different sequences and, and, but there's obviously something there within that that's, that's working. And that's kind of like, I suppose goes to the question of like what, what makes someone's unique creative voice and, and always kind of think that part of our personality shows through in the music that we make. Last question, Jim. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Chill out. 
I think I've spent, it's that classic thing. And I see this with a lot of the young people that I sort of work with is, you know, you, you, you plant a seed expecting to come back and find a tree the following day, but it doesn't work like that. You know, that it, it takes time and, you know, it's a cliche, but it's about, you know, enjoying the journey. And if, if at every step of the way you're sort of stressing because you're not where you want to be. And I, I had this as a singer songwriter. It's like, I wanted to get signed. And for every day that went by that I wasn't signed, I was unsuccessful and life was shit. But actually, you know, it's meant to be about the going out and the gigging and the playing. That's that's the fun bit. Because if you get signed, you're going to have to do even more of that. So if you don't enjoy that, what's the point in getting signed? So chill out and don't treat time as a means to an end. You know, time, time is, you know, it's about being present in the moment and enjoying what you're doing rather than constantly. I've spent so many, much of my life just trying to move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing without actually enjoying the there, the, the there and then and do what I was doing at that time. So, um, chill. You can find out more about Jim at larpmusic.com. That's LARP music, L-A-R-P-M-U-S-I-C, LARP music, all one word.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.